It's the season of giving, so give yourself a little extra Christmas cheer. Go on, you deserve it. Don't just buy a copy of my new book for all the Christmas lovers in your life. Buy one for yourself as well. Christmas Past, The Fascinating Stories Behind Our Favorite Holidays Traditions is available in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook. Find it wherever books are sold. Hey, it's Brian, back with another episode for those of us getting an early start on the Christmas season. Although, at this point, it's not so early anymore. If you're listening in real time, this episode arrives on Halloween. The Hallmark Channel is already one week deep into its countdown to Christmas. The Christmas decorations and eggnog have been on the store shelves for several weeks now. And, hint hint, your favorite podcaster's book releases tomorrow. But it is still October, and today is Halloween, so let's have one last haunted hurrah for the spooky business. And what better way to do that than to talk about a couple of Christmas monsters? And better yet, to talk about them with a renowned monster expert. Emily Zarka is a professor of English literature and the writer and host of two acclaimed series for PBS, Monstrum and Exhumed. I recently spoke with Dr. Z, as she's often called, about two of our most famous Christmas creatures, the Yule Cat and Krampus. And yes, you heard it here, it's Krampus, not Krampus. Christmas monsters are fun and sometimes a welcome diversion from the season's tendency toward the overly saccharine sweet and sentimental, but they're also a fascinating glimpse into human nature. As Dr. Z likes to say, monster history is human history. I'll come back at the end to wrap up and say goodbye. And now, here's my discussion with Emily Zarka. When it comes to monsters as a topic, I think the thing about them that I find most compelling isn't necessarily any individual monster itself, but the fact that we create them, that every culture at every time in history seems to come up with their own monsters and mythologies. And it seems to me that's one of the most fundamental things about what it is to be human. We create creatures. Why do you think that is? I agree. I think that part of being human is creating monsters. I think that why monsters are invented in response to what events, be that environmental, political, social, cultural, what have you, the, we are responding to those things directly. And the way monsters look or act actually teaches us about human history because of that fact. So for me, I think monsters act as funhouse mirrors. They reflect real world things back to us in an exaggerated way. And I also believe that monsters serve as instructive metaphors that we use alternatively to do things like teach moral lessons, condemn and promote certain behaviors, but also act as intellectual safe spaces for difficult conversations. So for me, yes, monster history is human history. So in the same way that we can use science fiction as kind of a lens through which we're examining ourselves, monsters serve the same purpose in a way. Exactly. Monsters overlap across all genres. That's one of the most important things to me in my research is that monsters aren't just about horror. It's not just scary stories and things that go bump in the night. We need to expand our definition of monsters to really consider those beings whose perceived deviance has some kind of narrative mythology surrounding it. And again, that can be more positive or more negative. And sometimes science fiction or the horror genre or the gothic genre make it maybe a little more spooky than anything else. But ultimately, yes, I think that monsters are just insights into our own world and how we process the world and the people around us. I think maybe an example of that would be how uh, when uh, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, that may have been a response to 
science perhaps getting a little too advanced and, and thinking of all the things that that might lead to. Absolutely. Mary Shelley is one of my favorite authors. I'm a romanticist uh, before I'm anything else. That's what my PhD is in, in romantic Gothic literature. And I agree. I think that Shelley was responding to scientific inquiry at the time and new sciences that were being done, but also response to her personal life, to the death of her mother during childbirth, to her relationship with Percy Shelley and the loss of her own children, the philosophical movements going on at the time, the French Revolution had just finished up and I think she was responding to all of these ideas. So Shelley's Frankenstein and the creature created within that are an excellent example of how even one singular story or type of monster can collect from multiple different environments and avenues of that particular moment in history. So in other words, monsters are never just about one thing or one topic. We have to look at them cohesively. Now, I know you did your doctoral dissertation on the undead. And it seems to me that nowadays, probably our, our favorite kind of monster in popular culture is the zombie. And in some ways, it's the, the most scary monster and in other ways, it seems like um, it's the least imaginative, right? It doesn't have horns and fangs. It's simply a reanimated corpse. And yet we keep finding ways to work it into a popular culture, stories, uh, movies, comics, and whatnot. Why now? Why is now the time that we've become so fascinated with zombies? That's a great question. Um, one that I explore in my documentary that I wrote and hosted, Exhumed, A History of Zombies. For me, my fascination truly with the undead is that they're so close to being us. I mean, you're literally one heartbeat away or you know, one virus away from becoming this sort of crazed creature not in control of their own bodies. And historically, the zombie goes back far beyond written literature. Um, it's important to think about how monsters were translated in oral tradition and folklore in history before they were written down anywhere. And the zombie, um, Z-O-M-B-I, is an example of that. The zombie emerged in Vodou from West African spiritual practices that were brought together under the horrors of slavery in Haiti. And that's really where we get the first so-called zombie. Um, but reanimated corpses of all kinds have an even longer history, thousands and thousands of years. So from my research, every culture that buries their dead has some kind of undead revenant threat in their monster mythology. And I think today zombies are particularly interesting because over the years, particularly with the influence of popular culture texts and things like George Romero and the trend of so-called rage or what I like to call pandemic zombies in the early 21st century, because of that really thin line between living and dead human and unhuman, I think it's easy for us to transcribe our fears onto the reanimated corpse in a lot of ways. And the zombie is just one thing, or I guess one example of how easy it is to do that with undead bodies. But I think that we see zombies today as particularly relevant. Um, I like to call the more modern zombies we're seeing the hive zombie. Um, I think World War Z does this really well where we've gone from, you know, maybe the singular enslaved zombie of voodoo tradition to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of zombie hordes acting in ways that are completely inhuman. And I think that that speaks to our fears of overpopulation, of bioweapons, 
of the fact that we are living in a world that we might not be able to sustain our human population in for much longer. One of the most consistent themes that comes up on Christmas Past is that Christmas is constantly evolving. Uh, You really can never celebrate the same Christmas twice. And the Christmases of long, long ago were very, very different from what we experience today. The, The idea that you grew up with and I grew up with that Christmas is entirely benign and cozy and all about gifts and magic is very, very new. And it wasn't all that very long ago that Christmas was populated with all kinds of superstitious rituals, threats of child abuse, uh, scary monsters and, and things like that. And I guess we could start with the the, uh, the Krampus monster who did not start out as having any special connection with Christmas. Isn't that right? That's correct. I think that the biggest misconception about Krampus today is that initial association with Christmas, which we'll speak to in a second. But more importantly, the biggest misconception about Krampus is that it's based on a pagan tradition. You'll see all these you know, blogs and people today trying to claim that Krampus was some part of an ancient fertility rite, but there's actually no evidence for this. Um, That's a myth that started much more recently. Originally, Krampus was more of a category of monster rather than the name of an individual creature. So the quote-unquote Krampus was more of a yuletide boogeyman that did actually become the dark foil to St. Nicholas in Alpine folklore. And the entire purpose of Krampus was to keep children and arguably adults in line when it was a hard time of year, food is scarce, attentions might be wavering, shall we say, and to keep people out of mischief, they had this threat of Krampus. So good children would receive presents from St. Nick and bad children would be spanked by Krampus. But again, no one's even really 100% sure why Krampus became associated with St. Nicholas and therefore Christmas. Um, There is some evidence from past theatrical productions, particularly in Jesuit theater in the Alpine region, that connect some kind of Krampus figure with with Satan actually on stage. So it's my opinion that Krampus as a more horned half goat, half human figure really evolved from this association between Christianity and the devil. And once you have St. Nicholas popping around giving gifts to kids, we as humans like to have that divide between good and evil. So this larger tradition of um, the perched, which are mischievous alpine spirits and the likely precursors to Krampus, that took on a more solidified standardized form to again, serve as a foil to St. Nicholas, to the good guy. I wonder if it was part of the larger trend that we see with St. Nicholas as he's going through his evolution, uh, where he used to dole out discipline himself, and then that was slowly phased out. He had these partners that went along with him to sort of outsource the discipline from St. Nicholas onto someone else. Absolutely. And even the name Krampus isn't that old. Um, The name for Krampus really only emerged in, at least again, in written record, in the 19th century, where we have to look again to popular culture to think about how the tradition developed. So in the Victorian period, there were these postcards with these very detailed, very dramatic depictions of Krampus of the one we would probably recognize today, right? With the horns, the tongue, and Austria's postal system was actually the first one to start delivering postcards in the same time period. So we have a really interesting connection there with an innovation in technology 
with the proliferation of uh, illustrated images of this figure. And that's the first time we actually see the name Krampus. Although, of course, there are earlier records of the so-called Krampus run or Krampuslauf um, hundreds of years previously. This figure didn't really take form until the 19th century, which you could argue is something that's happened very similarly with St. Nicholas, St. Nick, or Santa Claus. And I think that's true of a lot of the things that came out of the 19th century is they were coinciding with this massive boom in print media, which helped to socialize certain things and the ability to propagate a single image of what Santa Claus looks like far and wide. Whereas before, there were many disparate images of what Santa might look like. It's interesting that the relationship between technology and myth-making, because on the one hand, you know, technology would seem to have the potential to make us less superstitious, but in this case, it's actually helping to promote a superstition or spread the idea throughout a culture. Which is something I, as a literary scholar, am a huge, obviously, proponent of exploring, because I agree. I think that that connection between storytelling, print culture, and as you mentioned, technology, is so interesting. So when I study monsters today, it's not enough for me just to look at the written text. I have to be looking at things like photographs and postcards. And of course, we haven't even gotten into movies, right? So I do think that with technology comes both freedom in telling those stories, but there are fears of technology. And from my experience, a lot of the monsters that we continue to see are ones that are able to develop alongside those technologies whatever they are, and take on the anxiety that we feel around technology. I mean, fear of robots would be one really obvious example of that. Or going back to zombies, the hive zombie or the pandemic zombie is usually started not from some kind of evil sorcery practice like the original zombies, but from maybe a cell phone signal or an accidentally released bioweapon. So monsters continue to evolve in response to those technologies. And because of that, I can't see a, a period in human history where monsters are not going to exist. Now, when it comes to the Krampus, the, he's threatening in as much as he, he looks like a pretty scary guy, but he also carries around a, a birch branch. So one would imagine that there's, a, there's some specificity to the threat he poses. What kinds of things might Krampus do to you if he catches you in the act? So there was sort of different ranking of the punishment that Krampus could dole out, arguably based on how the children were behaving or maybe how much the adults wanted to scare them. But, you know, the lesser sort of evils would be just a spanking or a beating with the birch branch, which is not desired in any way, of course. But some of the more extreme, if you were really bad, he might even kidnap you and throw you into this sack or wooden basket to, you know, spirit away probably to eat you or torture you in some capacity. And that tradition is actually still practiced in some ways in that Krampus Lauf or Krampus run tradition which was first recorded in the 16th century in passing, but now has become a global phenomenon and honestly a tourist attraction um, in different Alpine regions where people will dress up as Krampus figures in runs or parades. And there are some cases even today where those um, players or those people who dress up like Krampus will actually beat um, and chase down unsuspecting members in the community. So there is this still a little bit of a dark, violent history associated with Krampus, which again, isn't necessarily desirable, but really interesting that we associate, or at least that tradition associates Yule time, which again, like you said, is supposed to be this cozy loving period with 
actual violence. But again, to me, that's not just about folkloric tradition. That's about the human condition. I mean, there are real horrors in our world. So it makes sense to me that there's not just certain times of year where we're supposed to be nice to one another. I mean, terrible things are still happening. Uh, I was actually in Reykjavik in 2019, and when you land in the airport, there is a big Yule cat right there, and in Grilla too, you can sit in her cauldron. Um, and I had, you know, sort of understood a little bit about those characters, and I got a little bit more information uh, from a tour guide when we were staying there. But um, yeah, tell me about the Yule cat. I love the Yule cat. I think the Yule cat is such an interesting extension of these larger. Uh, Christmas or Yuletide traditions. So the Yule cat is original to Iceland. Um, Iceland didn't really have any kind of Santa Claus or Saint Nick figure. They had the Yule lads or the Christmas lads who were the gift givers and vaguely terrorizers uh, that would give children presents uh, at that time of year. And part of the larger Yule family in Gryla, their mother was the Yule cat. And the Yule Cat was basically a giant, fluffy, massive feline that would prowl around the streets during Yule time. And if you did not receive new clothes before Christmas, and it would look in the windows to see this, it would drag you out of your home and attack you, potentially eat you. Um, so I think it's really interesting that the Yule Cat isn't just a threat for children, but for adults as well. It encouraged all people if we look at it closely to complete wool and clothing production, because again, the Yule cat is so closely tied to this idea of receiving new clothing. You of course can't get new clothes if you're not making them. So activities like combing, spinning, weaving wool, all of that that took place after the main harvest was over. Those were both incredibly valuable to survival of the Icelandic people both in terms of their economy and their actual physical desire to stay warm during the coldest part of the year. Was the Yule Cat like literally just a big cat or did, were there any uh, backstory or does it have magical powers or anything like that? I guess its only magical power would be being giant um, or troll-like in that capacity. So yeah, just a really, really massive cat. Um, again, connected to all the Yule Lads and that tradition. But yeah, no special powers other than just the claws and teeth and senses good hearing of a cat, which again is really interesting. But I think that if we look at the Yule cat in terms of things that were happening in the environment of Iceland, dogs were actually banned in Iceland at one point and you still need a special permit to have one even today. So there would very well be these giant cats roaming around, um, particularly the Norwegian cat, which is local to the Norwegian forest cat. Um, these are just really big, extra fluffy cats in real life. So it makes sense to me that in exaggerated folklore tradition, we would take an already existing wild creature and blow it up to massive size to make it seem, again, both real and unreal. Are there any other Christmas monsters or super superstitions you've come across in your research that you find compelling? I'm a fan of the Yule Cat in general. And again, I think the Icelandic Yule family with the Yule Lads, again, those specific troll figures who had really bizarre names and who would bring gifts and come down the mountain at certain times of day. I think those are just fascinating. Uh, the number of Yule lads ranges anywhere from nine to 82, which is a huge range. 
But since the 17th century, those Yule lads come down for the 13 days before Christmas and they leave certain presents but cause a little mischief along the way. So I think it's just another fun way of making mischief around the holidays. And unlike Krampus, that mischief is usually more or less violent. So things like spoon liquor, so, or maybe looking through your window, but nothing truly violent. And I think that that's a really interesting way that Icelandic tradition looked, or I guess interpreted both that good and evil dynamic um, of the Yuletime holiday. Thanks so much for listening and happy Halloween. Check the show notes to this episode for more information about Dr. Z and her series Monstrum and Exhumed. You can find her full episodes on the Yule Cat and Krampus. Big thanks to her for being here today, and thank you as always for listening. The main season of Christmas Past is less than a month away. Stay subscribed for weekly preseason episodes like this one leading up to Thanksgiving, and then join me for our annual Thanksgiving Day kickoff. After that, you can look forward to episodes arriving on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday of each week, and capping things off on Christmas Day itself with our 7th annual Christmas in Review. Let me remind you that now is a perfect time to send a Christmas memory to appear in an episode later this season. All you have to do is record yourself speaking into your phone's voice memo app and then send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Keep it to about a minute, clean and family-friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. I'll see you again next week, and until then, let me remind you that Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen, California, by yours truly, Brian Earle. Let's stay connected all throughout the season. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and join our private Christmas Past Facebook group if you haven't yet. And hey, if you're really feeling the Christmas spirit, why not help more people discover this show? It's as easy as telling a friend about it, or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do leave a review, I'll send you a Christmas Past sticker and a handwritten Christmas card any time of year. Reach out for details. And until we meet again, may your days be merry and bright.